Section 13 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Line 180. That noble sin. The prodigality I call a noble sin is not that which has avarice for its companion and makes men unreasonably profuse to some of what they unjustly extort from others, but that agreeable good-natured vice that makes the chimney smoke and all the tradesmen smile. I mean the unmixed prodigality of heedless and voluptuous men, that being educated in plenty, abhor the vile thoughts of lucre, and lavish away only what others took pains to scrape together, such as indulge their inclinations at their own expense, that have the continual satisfaction of bartering old gold for new pleasures, and from the excessive largeness of a diffusive soul are made guilty of despising too much what most people overvalue. When I speak thus honorably of vice, and treat it with so much tenderness and good manners as I do, I have the same thing at heart that made me give so many ill names to the reverse of it, viz. the interest of the public. For as the avaricious does no good to himself, and is injurious to all the world besides, except his heir, so the prodigal is a blessing to the whole society, and injures nobody but himself. It is true that as most of the first are knaves, so the latter are all fools. Yet they are delicious morsels for the public to feast on, and may with as much justice as the French call the monks the partridges of the women be styled the woodcocks of the society. Was it not for prodigality, nothing could make us amends for the rapine and extortion of avarice and power. When a covetous statesman is gone, who spent his whole life in fattening himself with the spoils of the nation, and had by pinching and plundering heaped up an immense treasure, it ought to fill every good member of the society with joy to behold the uncommon profuseness of his son. This is refunding to the public what was robbed from it. Resuming of grants is a barbarous way of stripping, and it is ignoble to ruin a man faster than he does it himself when he sets about it in such good earnest. Does he not feed an infinite number of dogs of all sorts and sizes, though he never hunts, keep more horses than any nobleman in the kingdom, though he never rides them? and give as large an allowance to an ill-favored whore as would keep a duchess, though he never lies with her? Is he not still more extravagant in those things he makes use of? Therefore let him alone, or praise him, or call him public-spirited lord, nobly bountiful and magnificently generous, and in a few years he will suffer himself to be stripped his own way. As long as the nation has its own back again, we ought not to quarrel with the manner in which the plunder is repaid." Abundance of moderate men, I know, that are enemies to extremes, will tell me that frugality might happily supply the place of the two vices I speak of, that if men had not so many profuse ways of spending wealth, they would not be tempted to so many evil practices to scrape it together, and consequently that the same number of men, by equally avoiding both extremes, might render themselves more happy and be less vicious without than they could with them. Whoever argues thus shows himself a better man than he is a politician. Frugality is like honesty, a mean, starving virtue that is only fit for small societies of good, peaceable men who are contented to be poor, so they may be easy. But, in a large, stirring nation, you may have soon enough of it. It is an idle, dreaming virtue that employs no hands, and therefore very useless in a trading country where there are vast numbers that one way or other must be all set to work. Prodigality has a thousand inventions to keep people from sitting still, that frugality would never think of. And as this must consume a prodigious wealth, so avarice again knows innumerable tricks to raise it together, 
which frugality would scorn to make use of. Authors are always allowed to compare small things to great ones, especially if they ask leave first, see licit exemplis, etc. But to compare great things to mean trivial ones is unsufferable, unless it be in burlesque. Otherwise I would compare the body politic, I confess the simile is very low, to a bowl of punch. Avarice should be the souring, and prodigality the sweetening of it. The water I would call the ignorance, folly, and credulity of the floating insipid multitude, while wisdom, honor, fortitude, and the rest of the sublime qualities of men, which separated by art from the dregs of nature, the fire of glory has exalted and refined into a spiritual essence, should be an equivalent to brandy. I do not doubt but a Westphalian, Laplander, or any other dull stranger that is unacquainted with the wholesome composition, if he was to sell the several ingredients apart, would think it impossible they should make any tolerable liquor. The lemons would be too sour, the sugar too luscious, the brandy he will say is too strong ever to be drank in any quantity, and the water he will call a tasteless liquor, only fit for cows and horses. Yet experience teaches us that the ingredients I named, judiciously mixed, will make an excellent liquor, liked of and admired by men of exquisite palates. As to our vices in particular, I could compare avarice, that causes so much mischief, and is complained of by everybody who is not a miser, to a griping acid that sets our teeth on edge, and is unpleasant to every palate that is not debauched. I could compare the gaudy trimming and splendid equipage of a profuse bow to the glistening brightness of the finest loaf sugar, for as the one, by correcting the sharpness, prevent the injury which a gnawing sour might do to the bowels, so the other is a pleasing balsam that heals and makes amends for the smart which the multitude always suffers from the gripes of the avaricious, while the substances of both melt away alike, and they consume themselves by being beneficial to the several compositions they belong to. I could carry on the simile as to proportions, and the exact nicety to be observed in them, which would make it appear how little any of the ingredients could be spared in either of the mixtures. But I will not tire my reader by pursuing too far a ludicrous comparison, when I have other matters to entertain him with of greater importance. And to sum up what I have said in this and the foregoing remark, shall only add that I look upon avarice and prodigality in the society as I do upon two contrary poisons in physic, of which it is certain that the noxious qualities being by mutual mischief corrected in both, they may assist each other, and often make a good medicine between them. Line 180, whilst luxury, employed a million of the poor, etc. If everything is to be luxury, as in strictness it ought, that is not immediately necessary to make man subsist as he is a living creature, there is nothing else to be found in the world, no, not even among the naked savages, of which it is not probable that there are any but what by this time have made some improvements upon their former manner of living, and either in the preparation of their eatables, the ordering of their huts, or otherwise, added something to what once sufficed them. This definition everybody will say is too rigorous. I am of the same opinion, but if we are to abate one inch of this severity, I am afraid we shall not know where to stop. When people tell us they only desire to keep themselves sweet and clean, there is no understanding what they would be at. If they made use of these words in their genuine proper literal sense, they might be soon satisfied without much cost or trouble if they did not want water. But these two little adjectives are so comprehensive, especially in the dialect of some ladies, that nobody can guess how far they may be stretched. The comforts of life are likewise so various and extensive that nobody can tell what people may mean by them, except he knows what sort of life they lead. 
the same obscurity I observe in the words decency and conveniency, and I never understand them unless I am acquainted with the quality of the persons that make use of them. People may go to church together and be all of one mind as much as they please. I am apt to believe that when they pray for their daily bread, the bishop includes several things in that petition which the sexton does not think on. By what I have said hitherto, I would only show that if once we depart from calling everything luxury that is not absolutely necessary to keep a man alive, that then there is no luxury at all. For if the wants of men are innumerable, then what ought to supply them has no bounds. What is called superfluous, to some degree of people, will be thought requisite to those of higher quality, and neither the world nor the skill of man can produce anything so curious or extravagant, but some most gracious sovereign or other, if it either eases or diverts him, will reckon it among the necessaries of life, not meaning everybody's life, but that of his sacred person. It is a received notion that luxury is as destructive to the wealth of the whole body politic as it is to that of every individual person who is guilty of it, and that a national frugality enriches a country in the same manner as that which is less general increases the estates of private families. I confess that though I have found men of much better understanding than myself of this opinion, I cannot help dissenting from them in this point. They argue thus. We send, say they, for example, to Turkey of woolen manufactory and other things of our own growth, a million's worth every year. For this we bring back silk, mohair, drugs, etc., to the value of twelve hundred thousand pounds, that are all spent in our own country. By this, say they, we get nothing. But if most of us would be content with our own growth, and so consume but half the quantity of those foreign commodities, then those in Turkey, who would still want the same quantity of our manufactures, would be forced to pay ready money for the rest. And so, by the balance of that trade only, the nation should get six hundred thousand pounds per annum. To examine the force of this argument, we will suppose, what they would have, that but half the silk, etc., shall be consumed in England of what there is now. We will suppose, likewise, that those in Turkey, though we refuse to buy above half as much of their commodities as we used to do, either can or will not be without the same quantity of our manufactures they had before, and that they will pay the balance in money, that is to say, that they shall give us as much gold or silver, as the value of what they buy from us exceeds the value of what we buy from them. Though what we suppose might perhaps be done for one year, it is impossible that it should last. Buying is bartering, and no nation can buy goods of others that has none of her own to purchase them with. Spain and Portugal, that are yearly supplied with new gold and silver from their mines, may forever buy for ready money, as long as their yearly increase of gold and silver continues. But then money is their growth, and the commodity of the country. We know that we could not continue long to purchase the goods of other nations if they would not take our manufactures in payment for them. And why should we judge otherwise of other nations? If those in Turkey, then, had no more money fall from the skies than we, let us see what would be the consequence of what we supposed. The six hundred thousand pounds in silk, mohair, etc., that are left upon their hands the first year, must make those commodities fall considerably. Of this the Dutch and French will reap the benefit as much as ourselves. And if we continue to refuse taking their commodities in payment for our manufactures, they can trade no longer with us, but must content themselves with buying what they want of such nations as are willing to take what we refuse, though their goods are much worse than ours, and thus our commerce with Turkey must in few years be infallibly lost. But they will say, perhaps, that to prevent the ill consequence I have showed, we shall take the Turkish merchandise as formerly, 
and only be so frugal as to consume but half the quantity of them ourselves, and send the rest abroad to be sold to others. Let us see what this will do, and whether it will enrich the nation by the balance of that trade with six hundred thousand pounds. In the first place, I will grant them that our people at home making use of so much more of our own manufactures, those who were employed in silk, mohair, etc., will get a living by the various preparations of woolen goods. But, in the second, I cannot allow that the goods can be sold as formerly, for suppose that the half is war at home to be sold at the same rate as before. Certainly the other half that is sent abroad will want very much of it, for we must send the goods to markets already supplied, and besides that, there must be freight, insurance, provision, and all other charges deducted, and the merchants in general must lose much more by this half that is reshipped than they got by the half that is consumed here. For, though the woolen manufacturers are our own product, yet they stand the merchant that ships them off to foreign countries, inasmuch as they do the shopkeeper here that retails them. So that if the returns for what he sends abroad repay him not what his goods cost him here, with all other charges, till he has the money and a good interest for it in cash, the merchant must run out, and the upshot would be, that the merchants in general, finding they lost by the Turkish commodities they sent abroad, would ship no more of our manufactures, than what would pay for as much silk, mohair, etc., as would be consumed here. Other nations would soon find ways to supply them with as much as we should send short, and somewhere or other to dispose of the goods we should refuse, so that all we should get by this frugality would be that those in Turkey would take but half the quantity of our manufactures of what they do now, while we encourage and wear their merchandises, without which they are not able to purchase ours." As I have had the mortification for several years to meet with abundance of sensible people against this opinion, and who always thought me wrong in this calculation, so I had the pleasure at last to see the wisdom of the nation fall into the same sentiments, as is so manifest from an act of Parliament made in the year 1721, where the legislator disobliges a powerful and valuable company, and overlooks very weighty inconveniences at home, to promote the interest of the Turkey trade and not only encourages the consumption of silk and mohair, but forces the subjects on penalties to make use of them whether they will or not. What is laid to the charge of luxury besides is that it increases avarice and rapine, and where they are reigning vices, offices of the greatest trust are bought and sold, the ministers that should serve the public, both great and small, corrupted, and the countries every moment in danger of being betrayed to the highest bidders, and, lastly, that it effeminates and enervates the people, by which the nations become an easy prey to the first invaders. These are indeed terrible things, but what is put to the account of luxury belongs to maladministration, and is the fault of bad politics. Every government ought to be thoroughly acquainted with, and steadfastly to pursue the interest of the country. Good politicians, by dexterous management, laying heavy impositions on some goods, or totally prohibiting them, and lowering the duties on others, may always turn and divert the course of trade which way they please, and as they will ever prefer, if it be equally considerable, the commerce with such countries as can pay with money as well as goods, to those that can make no returns for what they buy, but in the commodities of their own growth and manufactures, so they will always carefully prevent the traffic with such nations as refuse the goods of others, and will take nothing but money for their own. But, above all, they will keep a watchful eye over the balance of trade in general, and never suffer that all the foreign commodities together that are imported in one year shall exceed in value what of their own growth or manufacture is in the same imported to others. 
Note that I speak now of the interest of those nations that have no gold or silver of their own growth. Otherwise, this maxim need not to be so much insisted on. If what I urged last be but diligently looked after, and the imports are never allowed to be superior to the exports, no nation can ever be impoverished by foreign luxury, and they may improve it as much as they please, if they can but in proportion raise the fund of their own that is to purchase it. Trade is the principal, but not the only requisite to aggrandize a nation. There are other things to be taken care of besides. The meum and tuum must be secured, crimes punished, and all other laws concerning the administration of justice wisely contrived and strictly executed. Foreign affairs must be likewise prudently managed, and the ministry of every nation ought to have a good intelligence abroad and be well acquainted with the public transactions of all those countries that either by their neighborhood, strength, or interest may be hurtful or beneficial to them, to take the necessary measures accordingly of crossing some and assisting others as policy and the balance of power direct. The multitude must be awed, no man's conscience forced, and the clergy allowed no greater share in state affairs than our Savior has bequeathed in his testament. These are the arts that lead to worldly greatness. What sovereign power soever makes a good use of them that has any considerable nation to govern, whether it be a monarchy, a commonwealth, or a mixture of both, can never fail of making it flourish in spite of all the other powers upon earth, and no luxury or other vice is ever able to shake their constitution. But here I expect a full mouth cry against me. What? Has God never punished and destroyed great nations for their sins? Yes, but not without means, by infatuating their governors, and suffering them to depart from either all or some of those general maxims I have mentioned. And of all the famous estates and empires the world has had to boast of hitherto, none ever came to ruin, whose destruction was not principally owing to the bad politics, neglects, or mismanagements of the rulers. There is no doubt, but more health and vigor is expected among the people and their offspring from temperance and sobriety than there is from gluttony and drunkenness. Yet I confess that as to luxuries effeminating and enervating a nation, I have not such frightful notions now as I have had formerly. When we hear or read of things which we are altogether strangers to, they commonly bring to our imagination such ideas of what we have seen as, according to our apprehension, must come the nearest to them. And I remember that when I have read of the luxury of Persia, Egypt, and other countries where it has been a reigning vice, and that were effeminated and enervated by it, it has sometimes put me in mind of the cramming and swilling of ordinary tradesmen at a city feast, and the beastliness their overgorging themselves is often attended with. At other times it has made me think on the distraction of dissolute sailors, as I had seen them in company of half a dozen lewd women, roaring along with fiddles before them, and was I to have been carried into any of their great cities, I would have expected to have found one-third of the people sick abed with surfeits, another laid up with the gout, or crippled by a more ignominious distemper, and the rest, that could go without leading, walk along the streets in petticoats. It is happy for us to have fear for a keeper, as long as our reason is strong enough to govern our appetites, and I believe that the great dread I had more particularly against the word to enervate and some consequent thoughts on the etymology of it did me abundance of good when I was a schoolboy. But since I have seen something in the world, the consequences of luxury to a nation seem not so dreadful to me as they did. As long as men have the same appetites, the same vices will remain. In all large societies, some will love whoring and others drinking, 
the lustful that can get no handsome clean women will content themselves with dirty drabs, and those that cannot purchase true hermitage or pontac will be glad of more ordinary French claret. Those that cannot reach wine take up with most liquors, and a foot soldier or a beggar may make himself as drunk with stale beer or malt spirits as a lord with burgundy, champagne, or toque. The cheapest and most slovenly way of indulging our passions does as much mischief to a man's constitution as the most elegant and expensive. The greatest excesses of luxury are shown in buildings, furniture, equipages, and clothes. Clean linen weakens a man no more than flannel. Tapestry, fine painting, or good wainscot are no more unwholesome than bare walls. And a rich couch or a gilt chariot are no more enervating than the cold floor or a country cart. The refined pleasures of men of sense are seldom injurious to their constitution, and there are many great epicures that will refuse to eat or drink more than their heads or stomachs can bear. Sensual people may take as great care of themselves as any, and the errors of the most viciously luxurious do not so much consist in the frequent repetitions of their lewdness and their eating and drinking too much, which are the things which would most enervate them, as they do in the operose contrivances, the profuseness and nicety they are served with, and the vast expense they are at in their tables and amours. But let us once suppose that the ease and pleasures the grandees and the rich people of every nation live in render them unfit to endure hardships and undergo the toils of war. I will allow that most of the common council of the city would make but very indifferent foot soldiers, and I believe heartily that if your horse was to be composed of aldermen, and such as most of them are, a small artillery of squibs would be sufficient to rout them. But what have the aldermen, the common council, or indeed all people of any substance to do with the war but to pay taxes? The hardships and fatigues of war that are personally suffered fall upon them that bear the brunt of everything, the meanest indigent part of the nation, the working slaving people. For how excessive soever the plenty and luxury of a nation may be, somebody must do the work, houses and ships must be built, merchandises must be removed, and the ground tilled. Such a variety of labors in every great nation require a vast multitude, in which there are always loose, idle, extravagant fellows enough to spare for an army, and those that are robust enough to hedge and ditch, plow and thrash, or else not too much enervated to be smiths, carpenters, sawyers, cloth workers, porters, or carmen, will always be strong and hardy enough in a campaign or two to make good soldiers, who, where good orders are kept, have seldom so much plenty and superfluity come to their share as to do them any hurt. The mischief, then, to be feared from luxury among the people of war, cannot extend itself beyond the officers. The greatest of them are either men of a very high birth and princely education, or else extraordinary parts, and no less experience, and whoever is made choice of by a wise government to command an army en chef, should have a consummate knowledge in martial affairs, intrepidity to keep him calm in the midst of danger, and many other qualifications that must be the work of time and application, on men of a quick penetration, a distinguished genius, and a world of honor. Strong sinews and supple joints are trifling advantages, not regarded in persons of their reach and grandeur, that can destroy cities abed, and ruin whole countries while they are at dinner. As they are most commonly men of great age, it would be ridiculous to expect a hale constitution and agility of limbs from them. So their heads be but active and well furnished, it is no great matter what the rest of their bodies are. If they cannot bear the fatigue of being on horseback, 
they may ride in coaches or be carried in litters. Men's conduct and sagacity are nevertheless for their being cripples, and the best general the king of France has now can hardly crawl along. Those that are immediately under the chief commanders must be very nigh of the same abilities, and are generally men that have raised themselves to those posts by their merit. The other officers are all of them in their several stations obliged to lay out so large a share of their pay in fine clothes, accoutrements, and other things, by the luxury of the times called necessary, that they can spare but little money for debauches. For, as they are advanced, and their salaries raised, so they are likewise forced to increase their expenses and their equipages, which, as well as everything else, must still be proportionable to their quality. By which means, the greatest part of them are in a manner hindered from those excesses that might be destructive to health, while their luxury thus turned another way serves, moreover, to heighten their pride and vanity, the greatest motives to make them behave themselves like what they would be thought to be. See remark on line 321. There is nothing refines mankind more than love and honor. Those two passions are equivalent to many virtues. And therefore the greatest schools of breeding and good manners are courts and armies, the first to accomplish the women, the other to polish the men. What the generality of officers among civilized nations affect is a perfect knowledge of the world and the rules of honor, an air of frankness, and the humanity peculiar to military men of experience, and such a mixture of modesty and undauntedness as may bespeak them both courteous and valiant. Where good sense is fashionable, and a genteel behavior is in esteem, gluttony and drunkenness can be no reigning vices. What officers of distinction chiefly aim at is not a beastly but a splendid way of living, and the wishes of the most luxurious, in their several degrees of quality, are to appear handsomely, and excel each other in finery of equipage, politeness of entertainments, and the reputation of a judicious fancy in everything about them. But if there should be more dissolute reprobates among officers, than there are among men of other professions, which is not true. Yet the most debauched of them may be very serviceable, if they have but a great share of honor. It is this that covers and makes up for a multitude of defects in them, and it is this that none, how abandoned soever they are to pleasure, dare pretend to be without. But as there is no argument so convincing as matter of fact, let us look back on what so lately happened in our two last wars with France. How many puny young striplings have we had in our armies, tenderly educated, nice in their dress, and curious in their diet, that underwent all manner of duties with gallantry and cheerfulness. Those that have such dismal apprehensions of luxuries enervating and effeminating people might, in Flanders and Spain, have seen embroidered bow with fine laced shirts and powdered wigs stand as much fire and lead up to the mouth of a cannon with as little concern as it was possible for the most stinking slovens to have done in their own hair though it had not been combed in a month, and met with abundance of wild rakes who had actually impaired their healths and broke their constitutions with excesses of wine and women that yet behaved themselves with conduct and bravery against their enemies. Robustness is the least thing required in an officer, and if sometimes strength is of use, a firm resolution of mind which the hopes of preferment, emulation, and the love of glory inspire them with will at a push supply the place of bodily force. Those that understand their business, and have a sufficient sense of honor, as soon as they are used to danger, will always be capable officers, and their luxury, as long as they spend nobody's money but their own, will never be prejudicial to a nation. 
By all which, I think, I have proved what I designed in this remark on luxury. First, that in one sense everything may be called so, and in another there is no such thing. Secondly, that with a wise administration all people may swim in as much foreign luxury as their product can purchase, without being impoverished by it. And lastly, that where military affairs are taken care of as they ought, and the soldiers well paid and kept in good discipline, a wealthy nation may live in all the ease and plenty imaginable, and in many parts of it show as much pomp and delicacy as human wit can invent, and at the same time be formidable to their neighbors, and come up to the character of the bees in the fable, of which I said, that, flattered in peace and feared in wars, they were the esteem of foreigners, and lavish of their wealth and lives, the balance of all other hives. See what his father said concerning luxury in the remarks on line 182 and 307. End of section 13